Hi, y'all. Today, we're talking about magazines. I know about newspapers, documentaries, radio stations, and podcasts, but I'm going to be real with you. I don't know anything about magazines. So, I brought in an expert. Victor Lukerson is a magazine journalist currently living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He writes for Time Magazine, The New Yorker, and was an editor at The Ringer, as well as Time Magazine. Most recently, he's been working on a book on Black Wall Street, and that is where we're going to jump in today. Hope you enjoy. Did you have any connections with Tulsa before you came here? Or did you? None. No, I visited for an article about Black Wall Street in 2018. That was my first time here. So I came here not knowing anybody or anything. It was specifically uh, for this book project. Gotcha. What got you onto this subject, this particular uh, piece of history? Um, I was actually more attracted to the uh, success and solidarity of Greenwood as opposed to the massacre. Um, the whole thing started for me, I guess it was about three years ago. I was having lunch with one of my friends uh, in Atlanta. We were talking about the movie 12 Years a Slave. He had, he had never seen it. He was kind of embarrassed for not having seen it, but he was like, yeah, I'm just really tired of all these movies and TV shows where we're getting beat up in the past, whether it's uh, the era of enslavement or the civil rights movement. That's sort of most of what you hear about black history, you know? And so I asked him, have you heard of Black Wall Street? That's an example when we were actually successful. He had never heard of it. And so at that time, if you Googled Black Wall Street or Greenwood, there wasn't that much on, on the internet about it, which is weird to say now because it's, you know, everywhere after the summer. Um, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't see like a long uh, definitive treatment or, you know, that kind of went through the entire history of the community. And so I decided to come here and write a story about it. I did that in 2018. And then I expanded that into a book proposal last year and sold that book to Random House. And then I moved out here to, uh, you know, expand on and do the book. That's awesome. How long was Greenwood a thriving district? Or what, what were kind of the years that you're covering in the book? Well, my book's going to go through the entire arc of it, but um, Greenwood basically emerges about 1905. That's when a man in O.W. Gurley first built a grocery store um, around the corner of Archer and Archer Street and Greenwood Avenue, which is sort of the heart of the district. Um, it was sort of a, a cent, it was it was ascending at the time of the massacre. Um, so you had like a very elaborate hotel called the Shepherd Hotel that had just opened shortly before the massacre. There is a woman named Lula Williams who owned a movie theater in Greenwood and had two other ones in Okmulgee and Muskogee. She's kind of creating this theater empire. Um, you had a very prominent newspaper, black newspaper, the Tulsa Star, and the editor of that was the president of the Western Negro Press Association, A.J. Smitherman. So the community itself was pretty new at the time of the massacre, and it sort of, and Tulsa was new, you know, because of oil and all that. And so it was definitely becoming a very prominent place. Um, in black society and then the massacre happens but they ended up rebuilding it actually so Greenwood had another kind of another rebirth after the massacre and then 30s and 40s in particular is very prominent had a lot of businesses a lot of successful families that kind of stuff um but then because of both desegregation people could move to other communities and also because of urban renewal um highways built in the middle of the neighborhood and um a lot of houses were claimed by the Tulsa Development Authority for the greater good quote-unquote uh, so because of all those factors, Greenwood ended up going through a pretty steep decline in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, kind of dormant for a while to some extent. And it's had, it's had a big resurgence in the last um, 10 years, a mix of gentrification and um, some actual Black-owned businesses that have come back really to recapture that original history. Gotcha. 
So this is a really historic based project. Um, do you consider yourself a historian or do you consider yourself more of a, just a non-fic writer? How do you characterize what you're doing here? Uh, well, I say I'm a journalist in the first place, I guess. So I'm a journalist sort of figuring, figuring out history as I go. Um, and that's changed my perspective in some sense. Journalism is very, um, journalism is very, it's very rules-based is what I would say. Like if you're a journalist, you have to find certain sources that prove your point. Like there's like tiers of sources, how they're valued. Do you know what I mean? So like if I find something in, in the New York Times, that means it's true if I'm a journalist. But when you actually do a lot of historical research and look at primary documents, you realize that a lot of things actually sort of get shaped by public consensus or just sort of things that get told a lot just kind of become true and they're not actually true. And so, I don't know, I just become, I feel like I have a much more subjective view of, um, all the facts I encounter kind of now, because I've just sort of seen the way that history is this debate that's argued sort of among people in power. And then somebody ends up winning the debate and that's history, you know, that's kind of how it plays out for real. I didn't really, I didn't really think about it that way until I actually kind of read, read all these primary sources and sort of saw how what I was reading in these sources wasn't exactly what I had read in a quick summary of Greenwood, for example, you know? Right. Where do you go to get most of these sources? Or do you find them in, in city archives or where do you do most of your digging for a project like this? It's a mixture. Um, old newspapers are really valuable, especially the black newspaper, the Tulsa Star, because it has a lot of information and perspective that are not present in the white newspaper. Two newspapers, Tulsa World and the Tulsa uh, Tribune were around at the time of the massacre. So the newspaper is really valuable, but even then it's sort of like you have to sort of parse through, okay, like, this newspaper is really focused on men, for example, even the black ones. So it's really hard to find information about black women in the newspaper. They get these very short briefs as opposed to all this writing about like politics and all this stuff. Um, or, I mean, any newspaper of that era, even more than today, is going to be kind of like boosterish. So like they're kind of hyping up how great Greenwood is, but that's like part of their project to make Greenwood better. You know what I mean? And so you have to be kind of aware of all of these different motivations and biases um, that can be present in any, any kind of thing you read like that. Um, but they're really valuable for getting, you know, narratives and anecdotes and that kind of stuff. Um, I find land, I find land records really interesting because they kind of tell, I mean, no source is objective, but they, they tell a more, they tell, they tell a story that's a little bit less influenced by people's motives. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so, um, for example, I find it really interesting in the land deeds for the Dreamland Theater, which is the, I mentioned this woman, Lula Williams owned this theater. Um, in the landies, you can see that she owned it outright. But basically, she has, she has an affidavit that she signed that said, I own this theater. My husband does not own it. It's mine. And oh. so that explains a lot about who she was as a person, as an independent entrepreneur in that era. And so to me, that says a lot about her personality even that I could not find in any other documents. about. Because like I said, it's very thin in the newspaper. In the newspaper, it says, John was her husband. He's this great guy, this black Rockefeller. He's doing, all, he's doing everything. But then you look at the affidavit and she's saying, no, legally, this is mine, not his. And so I think trying to sort of trying to find those things that are going to be separate from the narrative people are trying to present um, is always interesting. Right. You get into some of that intersectional work, what's what's being done on on these these issues of of what, what black people are going through at this time, but where are also the feminist issues and and uh, some of the other right. issues. Right. I imagine that's that's really interesting. I had not heard of this particular theater so that's mm -hmm. the, if i'm over in tulsa is there anything is it still there at all no the only structure from before the massacre um is the 
one one church burning AME church the basement of that church survived um, the massacre but even stuff afterwards the Dreamland theater was rebuilt after the massacre but it was destroyed during um, when they built the highway so you can see a plaque right by the overpass that says Dreamland theater was here um, but um, there's very 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 few vestiges from either Greenwood's um, original heyday or the second sort of mid-century heyday almost almost everything is gone gotcha gosh that's awful man so hey, I kind of got started out of order, um, but I'd like okay. to come back and and ask you a little bit. How did you get started doing what you do? This is a great project, but how did you how did you get started as a writer? Well, I've been writing my whole life, um, stories and poems and all that when I was a kid. Uh, I got I got into journalism when I was in high school. I wrote for a local um, weekly feature, a local weekly paper in Montgomery, Alabama, where I'm from, doing stories about like oh, this play is opening at the local theater or like, oh, this nonprofit is helping people. They're like kind of like um, soft features, basically is what I wrote first. Um, and then I became the editor of my school newspaper at the University of Alabama. So I learned a lot more about hard journalism, you know, through that process. Um, and then after that, I, from school, I actually got a job at Time Magazine working there, covering um, technology and business a lot for them. And so I learned a lot about sort of how businesses work and sort of how people lie a lot, like people, people in power, basically. <laughs> um, so I think that kind of gave me that skill to sort of parse through that kind of stuff. I feel like there's a story there. <laughs> um, and then I worked for this website called The Ringer after that, which is a pop culture sports website for the most part. But I was writing about technology and race and politics, actually. So I actually went to Tulsa. Um, for the ringer that's where i wrote the first story about it um and now i'm a freelancer so i write for the new yorker time magazine uh the new york times i just kind of bounce around between different outlets now gotcha how do you make that transition from editor of school newspaper to working for <laughs> this this much bigger company like what was that like well the only reason i got is for the connections i would tell students that networking is super important um when I, was a, when I was the editor of the school newspaper, our advisor, he was an Alabama alum, but also he, was, he, had, he had been a prominent editor in New York City before he basically retired and came back to Alabama. And so he was able to connect me with editors at Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated and all these places. Otherwise, I would have been, I would have been anywhere near there. So like networking is really important and also networking in terms of like doing, doing a good job where you're at kind of, you know, because in that case, he identified me as somebody who was doing good work at Alabama. It wasn't about me being like, yo, send me to New York. It was more like he identified that I was somebody who was dedicated to my craft and working really hard and so would do well in New York. Um, so making those connections with older people is extremely important so that when you do good stuff, you know, people are gonna notice it. Um, but the transition was tough mainly because I actually didn't wanna write, write about technology or business. I had no, I didn't, had no background in it. But that was just the job they had open. So I was like, they asked me, oh, do you like business? I said, of course, I, lo I love business. And then I became a business reporter for like seven years just because that was the job that was open. And then, you know, once you're in the job like that, you just kind of go down the path, you know what I mean? Um, so actually it was a big challenge for me to get off that, get off that track and get into things that I'm actually more, more interested in. It was actually very difficult. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's another, I think, challenge of this industry is you're always gonna sort of be at the mercy of what the editors want or what you know the public they think the public wants and before this summer that wasn't really stories about race that much you know what i mean so 
So how, how were you able to make that transition? Um, a lot of it was me just taking time on my own to do stuff. Like when I worked at Time as a business reporter, for example, I wrote an essay about Ferguson and Mike Brown after work one day. And then, they, and then they published it because it was good. But it wasn't like they gave me time at work to do it. Um, and then later on, I would sort of argue for sending me to certain places that were about tech. Like I got to cover the um, 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma. They sent me down there. But even in that case, like I'm from Alabama, so I had to stay at my parents' house and drive to Selma every day because they wouldn't pay for a hotel. So I'm just saying, like, it was always kind of like this like um, negotiation, you know, for me to write about race or write about things that were not on my beat, quote unquote. And so a lot of it was just me being like, I really want to do this. I'm going to figure out how to do it, even though no one actually wants me to do this right now, you know? And that's, that's what it was for me for like several years, actually, which is kind of crazy to think about because all this stuff is so important now and also so like valuable to these companies. You know what I mean? Right. So do you have, do you have a lot of work coming in as a freelancer now? Um, how, how's the freelance life treating you? Yeah. Even that's changed dramatically because of what's happened. Um, this summer. Um, so I, I started freelancing last year and it was going okay. Um, actually, actually in March, I was going to, I was supposed to be writing a story about COVID for the New York times. And they basically like ghosted me. Like they sent me to go um, to a homeless shelter here in Tulsa, right when the whole thing was starting in March. And I wrote a story about homeless people and how they're dealing with the coronavirus. And they, they like never responded, never paid me. Um, so, I mean, freelancing, freelancing kind of goes that way sometimes. You just mean these really bizarre scenarios where the editors see no value in your work or even your, your life, you know, in that, in that case, which is kind of crazy. Um, Gosh, I can't, I can't imagine that. I would be so furious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't anger easily, so. Um, but then I'm, my point is that that happened in March, and then, you know, everything got shut down for a while, but then after George Floyd was killed, and then when Trump came to, specifically Trump came to Tulsa, I mean, five or six different outlets were trying to reach out to me to write stories for them about that. And then since then, basically, I would say that with Tulsa being very central to this national narrative about a racial reckoning, um, I find a lot more people interested in my work. And I have, a pretty con I have a pretty consistent role with The New Yorker, actually, where I'm writing different sort of slices of life here in Tulsa for them um, in the run-up to the centennial of the massacre next year. There was something I wanted to ask you a little bit about is just uh, going back to your, your what you said about COVID, like how has that changed the way that you've been working, um, doing interviews and research and stuff? Yeah, I mean, over the summer, all the libraries here were closed. So that was a challenge. I ended up having, it made things more expensive basically, because instead of being able to uh, go to the library and look at a book, I'd go, I had to buy it or I had to get subscriptions like ancestry.com, things like that, that I used to go to the library for. Um, for a while, it was also just a big, um, psychological burden, I guess, because I usually I'll go, if I get bored here with my work, I can go to a coffee shop or just go somewhere and change the scenery helps get my mental capacity back up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then with the COVID, you suck it all the time. So that's, I was actually being super lazy, like in April. Like I was like, <laughs> games, like not doing what I should be doing. I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, but actually, George Floyd basically snapped me out of it. And I was like, okay, this is like why I'm here to be a journalist. I have something to say about this. And I should be like, using my platform in a productive way. Um, so I've been much more focused um, this summer than I was right after COVID, COVID hit. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what kind of the life cycle of one of your stories looks like. How, how does, with the way you're working now versus the way you were working like as an editor, um, 
like where does the story start and and what are the cycles that it goes through at a magazine um well yeah i can walk through the story i have coming out uh this week actually um i'm right i just wrote a story for time magazine about reparations specifically about rosewood florida rosewood was the site of a race massacre in 1923 um where basically this small rural hamlet was destroyed by a white mob um because a white woman accused an unknown black assailant of rape and then there was a violent altercation between black people defending their homes and the mob and then after this violent altercation the mob burned down the whole burned down the entire community um but the um the survivors were still alive in the 1990s and they, they actually got reparations from the state of florida and it's basically the only case the only modern case of reparations for black people um from the government that exists and so i kind of wanted to do a year ago i wanted to do it because i was like okay i'm in tulsa tulsa wants reparations i should look back at this older model and see what they did and like what their process was and if it could be recreated and so that's the frame in which i pitched it i pitched it the time about a year ago in that frame and you know reparations a year ago was it was being discussed in the democratic debates and obviously it's become a much bigger topic in general in the last three to four years um but still not i would not say something that's like expected particularly you know um so when i pitched the story i kind of had to i was kind of like scrounging to make it relevant is how i would put it you know i was trying to figure out how can i make this thing from 20 years ago relevant today when it's not that obvious how it's relevant it is one thing i did was try to figure out okay is anybody right now trying to implement trying to copy this strategy and i found uh, a state center in florida um this is before everything this summer this is like early at the start of the year this guy uh, was pushing for a reparations bill in florida modeled exactly on the rosewood case and so that gave me base like you know news has that currency you know and so that his effort to remodel rosewood was the currency i needed to make this story click today basically um and so the structure of the story was really that i identified one family uh, from rosewood who had gotten reparations and they actually bought a house with their money in the 1990s and the family still lived in the house and so the story went from the grandmother's experience in rosewood in 1923 and then winds through their entire lives and generations going on and how they live in the house now and how the house has benefited their whole family um and so that was basically the narrative i had to kind of also you have to have kind of a narrative through line you know so that narrative that narrative sort of gave it the story the story part of it you know and then this guy in Florida, this other senator gave it the currency you need for it to actually be news. Um, and so that's how it was structured before this summer. And then this summer, reparations are being discussed nationwide. Several cities have passed reparations ordinances. So now it's like self-evident why it's important, you know? So it's been, it was kind of interesting sort of like having to sort of like figure out a way to make it important. And then the world kind of caught up to what I was talking about. And so now it's like self-evident why this is, even, this is an important story, you know? Right. And how did you come across this topic to begin with? What what made you what what caught you on to the what happened in Florida in Rosewood? Um, it was through it was through Tulsa. So I know I'm in Tulsa. I guess one thing I will say is that I did not realize how widespread these massacres were when I started this project. Um, there was a period called the Red Summer in 1919 when there were race massacres in dozens of cities um, instigated by white mobs. And um, Rosewood is basically part of that time period of this racial upheaval. And so I basically, I, I basically found out about it via the Tulsa research. 
And then I realized because they get reparations that it was going to have to be part of my book because I know I was going to be discussing reparations here and you have to look back what happened before to understand it. So that's basically how I got into it. And so really my strategy initially was if I can get Time Magazine to pay for me to go to Florida and pay me to write this story, that's like getting them to pay for part of my book, which is great, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, but now it kind of, now it's, an, it become, it be, it's become a much more standalone, important story than I really imagined it when I pitched it, I would say, you know? Gotcha. Now I read uh, one of your New Yorker stories, uh, the one that you sent me based in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. you got so detailed and so personal like the details that you brought in about you know this uh th- this lady she was meeting with someone and they were you you knew what they were eating at that at that meeting how do you mm-hmm. get that level of detail from people um how do you interview in such a way that you you learn these things and weave such a, a visual narrative um i mean there's a few strategies one is I've got some old stuff and some newer things you can do. I think one of the most important things is getting people to slow down because sometimes people will be telling you about what happened and they want to get to sort of like what their argument is or what, you know, why they're, anybody's interviewing with you has an argument they're trying to make or, you know, a point they're trying to get to. And then I want to get the human stuff. So I'll ask, okay, like, okay, where, where were you when you had this conversation or how are you feeling when you were in this moment? And for me here, it's a little bit easier because I'm sometimes, I'm sometimes at the events. And so... For example, this, at the start of that story, um, Tiffany Crutcher, whose brother was killed by Tulsa police in 2016, at the start of that story, she's at this press conference, and it's like right after George Floyd was killed, and it's that it, it was that window of time when everybody was just kind of like shell shocked and kind of dejected, but not taking action. And so I was able to ask her, and I saw her, I saw her there, and I saw that she seemed shell shocked to me. You know, she just seemed like she didn't quite know what to do. And so I just asked, I was like, you know, I was at that press conference with you and it seemed like you didn't quite know what to do. You know, how are you feeling? And I think because I was there and sort of had best something to chew into the situation, she came back with something maybe a little more authentic as opposed to if I, if I just asked you without knowing that, maybe she's just going to get to her points about police brutality and all that kind of stuff and kind of skate past her own feelings. So being present for observing these and go back and ask people about later is really helpful because it just kind of like nudges them towards a real response. Um, and then the second thing I was going to bring up is just um, these days, a lot of people are recording a lot of things all the time. So for example, um, later in that story, it kind of like, you kind of like walk with her as these protesters shut down the highway in Tulsa. And I got, I was at that protest, but I wasn't with her. But I got a lot of that from her Facebook Live. She Facebook Live from the entire protest. So I, was, I just watched it later. And that's just literally that's literally the part that's through her eyes, right? And so that made it a lot easier to sort of give this sort of that, that, that dynamic where you felt you're with her, even though I didn't, I didn't have to ask her all these questions about how was that part of it because she literally, she had recorded the entire thing. I think just being aware of like, what are these newer tools you can use that will give you some of that um, color without having to ask somebody a million questions. Right, Facebook Live has changed the game for reporting. We have all yeah. these, these first sources now. It's, it's fascinating. Sure. So let's see. Um, so I used to work for a daily newspaper. So okay. I, 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 they would throw me something and I would have to, to spend like an hour reporting it and then I'd have an hour to write it up, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think later, oh gosh, I missed, I missed what the real story here was. I got the facts, mm-hmm. but I didn't get the deeper stuff here. 
You talk about this time one that you've been working on for a year. I don't know how long you worked on the New Yorker one. How do you, how much time do you normally give yourself for a story and when do you know it's done? I mean, it's very story by story. The New Yorker story is written in about two weeks. Um, I started the story, I mean, at that press conference after George Floyd was killed. So I think it was published two weeks after that. So I wrote that really fast and it had to be written fast because it was about that moment. You know what I mean? And right. um, in that case though, I mean, in a case like that story, I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted that story to be about something besides her pain, you know? I think there's sort of this dynamic that's existed for a while where uh, black people's pain can kind of be turned into content, I guess. Um, and I didn't want to write a story like that. So it wasn't really about, it wasn't really about her pain and her loss of her brother and all that stuff she'd gone through because that's been written several times. It was more about her role as an activist and these policies she's, she's looking for and are these policies valid, you know? And I knew that when, I knew that going into the story. So then I guess I say all that to say that I knew once I sort of had the policy I wanted to focus on, which is the idea of an independent monitor who would be part of Tulsa Police Department. Once I knew that was the sort of the real point of the story, it made it easier for me to sort of figure out everything, everything being framed around that, you know? Um, and so in that case, I knew I was done when I had enough, when I had enough information to make that specific policy sort of carry through um, in the reporting. Um, in the case of the time story, it was taking a year I was only in uh, Florida for, I think, four days. So it's almost like the opposite situation where instead of having all this time to sort of meet people and get to know them and all this, I'm just kind of thrown in this situation and have to report really, really quickly. Um, so I think in, in that scenario, I kind of knew, I, I knew that story. I knew, I knew how that story was going to work when I found out this family had a house. Um, Cause I, I called, uh, Basically, there's a woman who's kind of like works with the different families who are from Rosewood, and so she's like a historian. And so I interviewed her first, and she was telling me about how they'd all gotten the money, how most of them were, how most of them had like actually like not been able to spend the money in a particularly um, joyful way because they had to pay for their health bills and all this kind of stuff. And then she, she kind of said offhandedly, "Well, one person bought a house." And I was like, "Well, stop. Wait a minute. Who bought the house? Let me. I want to meet that person because that's a great visual, right?" Right. Um, and so in that case, once I sort of met met the family in the house and sort of saw how it impacted them. That's when I knew like how that story was going to work. And so it made it easier to sort of think about the whole story when I sort of knew like, this is the, this is the image I want people to be left with um, when they finish this piece. I'd love to hear more about you. You've been talking about wanting to focus on the more joyful aspects of this and how pain is starting to be used. It's being used as content. Um, what, how, what drives your decisions when, when writing about, this type of thing because there is pain here but there is also the joyful angles that can be taken what what how do you choose what angle you're going to take how do you how do you balance that that's a good question um i mean it's pretty intuitive i guess i think that what can i say is actually useful i feel like um I often, I often just try to get to like the dichotomy that exists. I think good stories are going to sort of can express both sides of that. Um, an example of that would be, this is not on the scale of what we've been discussing, but um, a, a bookstore, a black owned bookstore just opened in my neighborhood um, like um, a couple months ago. And I wrote a story about this for the New Yorker. And so 
I think there's one version of that story that's sort of like, I mean, you know, in a restaurant up in your town or whatever, it's like a very positive, fluffy lights. Isn't this great? We have this store. It's all great. Everyone's happy. Um, but I was interested in like her, this person's role as um, this person sort of like helping white people figure out what what's going on in America right now. And sort of like how weird that is that it's her role as a black woman to like help these white people figure out what's going on. And like, that's kind of, that's like actually literally her job now, essentially, you know? And sort of what role she plays in that dynamic. And, you know, when I was interviewing her, this neighborhood is gentrifying really fast that I live in. When I was interviewing her, these uh, three young women came up and they asked her, is the neighborhood safe? And they were asking those kind of questions. And it was like a very awkward exchange. But I ended up capturing that in my story because I was like, this is like the, this is the real, not necessarily a positive interaction, this is like the real dynamic that occurs when you try to um, have, a, have a black space in a rapidly whitening community. Like, this is what happens, you know? And so I just thought that was important to capture that because it made the whole story feel more real and have a, great, a greater sense of place. Um, and so that's sort of like the inverse, I guess, of, you know, trying to find that joy in a horrible situation. That was trying to find, what's, what's the tension here? There's a tension here. This, this bookstore isn't just like this generic great thing that has no, that has no struggle, or has no, you know, um problems everyone's dealing with problems and i was gonna be able to figure out either what's the what's the problem that no one's really seeing in this or like what is what is the joy that no one's sort of being able to derive from this bad situation right i wonder also like you you write for these these major publications you write for the new yorker i don't know what the demographics are on on the readership of the new yorker people who can afford a new yorker subscription um so you, you mentioned this, this lady at the bookstore who's kind of, her job has become educating white people. Who do you consider your primary audience as you're writing about Greenwood and about what's happening in Tulsa right now? Well, I also have different audiences. Um, the New Yorker audience would be, I mean, I get a lot of emails from white people from around America, basically, that are like, I didn't know about this stuff. Like, this is so great. Thank you. Um, somebody emailed me when I said, I couldn't tell if you were black or white when you wrote this. I thought it was a weird thing to say, but. <laughs> um, it's a weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah. She wanted to like, she wanted me to give her a tour of Greenwood and I was like, no, I don't know you, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think for the New Yorker audience is, I would say, I mean, I guess one thing I'll say is these audiences, these audiences are changing, right? When I was a kid or a teenager, even in college, I would never read the New Yorker. That was just like, who even thought about the New Yorker, you know, as somebody from Alabama. However, I just think, I think that um, stories are a lot more modular now, you know, stories travel around the internet um, just because they're interesting to different, different kinds of people. And so I say that to say that I don't think that much about audience in that way, because I feel like different, the right stories will reach the right people to some extent. Um, however, New Yorkers paywall, as you said, so that's gonna be a narrower, wealthier, wider audience. But I also, have, I also have a newsletter that I do, a free newsletter called Run It Back, that's bi-weekly and has basically these like mini reported essays about the history of Greenwood, kind of walking through it chronologically. And that's basically just a blog that I publish every two weeks. So anybody can read that stuff. And I've already found that a lot of professors, yourself have read that, sort of brought me to talk to students. Um, somebody recently reached out to me from the Oklahoma History Center, wanted to incorporate that into some lesson plans for uh, I guess, high school or primary school students in Oklahoma. Um, so I think that's been a really valuable thing. I'm glad I did because it takes this information that's 
extremely important and takes it away from the realm of, oh, you gotta buy a $35 book or a hundred dollar New Yorker subscription to read this, you know? So the core facts that I'm finding are basically all gonna be made free via this newsletter over the course of the next year. Gotcha, well, that's awesome. Something you said about the modular nature of articles once they hit online. One thing that we're very focused on this class is how has, how has online changed the way these traditional businesses done their work? Um, we're all pretty pro online, but I'm, I'm curious because you do work for magazines generally, what is it, what's been the difference between something that has been published traditional and what has been published online? How's that affect your work? Um, I mean, now it doesn't. I mean, I had a lot of struggles with that when I was younger. Um, I remember when I was in college, actually, I really wanted to start a magazine, like a magazine focused on race and other campus issues. And basically the powers that be there were like, we can't afford that. You can do it online. I was like, oh my God, this is trash. Like online doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> that was 2008. So that's a different era. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then at Time Magazine, actually, when I got there, they were basically like transitioning from being very print focused to being very online focused. In that case, it was actually a really bad thing because I went from writing um, reasonably, reasonably in-depth, careful stories to a lot of aggregating. And so my job there was to basically summarize the news in like 15 minutes for like mm. 200 word blog posts. Um, so in that, and I guess I, my point was just that in that era, online was not a good thing. It seemed like a bad thing to me because it seemed to be sinking this industry that I just joined essentially in, in terms of like actually being honing your craft. Um, but the ringer where I worked after that is an online only publication and they publish lots of feature stories and they send me all around America writing these really interesting stories for an online audience. And so I think that, you know, today it's more all the, all the dynamics of magazine writing have shifted to be online for the most part. Um, that Tiffany Crutcher story about Tulsa policing that I wrote, that was online only, but I mean, basically it could have been a magazine story. Um, and so this story I just wrote for Time Magazine, everyone I know who reads it, it's gonna, it's not gonna be behind a paywall. Like Time Magazine, the print, this gonna, it's gonna be in print. Time Magazine does have a paywall, but this story will not be paywall because they probably feel that it's so current that they wanna get as many readers as possible. And so I think a lot of those um, barriers have kind of fallen away over the last five or so years. It's an interesting development. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's kind of working out on, on your end. Yeah. Um, you mentioned yourself back in college. And I want to circle back around to your days as editor of, of your newspaper. We have a newspaper here at Langston. We also have a okay. radio station and a TV station. So yeah. we, we get lots of experience there. For someone who would want to do the type of work that you're doing, what should they invest their time in while they're here at college? How, how should they use the newspaper to help them? Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, I think first off, just being involved with the campus media is really important. When I was in school, there were some people who would just be like, who are journalism majors would only do the coursework, you know? But I personally learned way, way, way more working for the school paper. So I think first of all, you're already kind of ahead if you're doing that because some, some journalism students don't, some journalism students do not do that. Um, I think that experimenting a lot is actually really valuable. Um, when I was the editor of the campus newspaper, it was still a newspaper very much so, but um, I was the one who was like, oh, we need, to, we need to make Twitter a big thing and like start using social media a lot for the newspaper and like start doing a lot of multimedia. And so I had a lot of thoughts about 
sort of what was coming next in media, you know, as a young person. And I think when I was trying to apply for jobs, the older, the adults, you know, they appreciated that. They thought that I was going to help them figure out what's next, you know? And so I think thinking about that and how you can, how you can communicate with people, you know, where they are, that's, I mean, you're going to have to do that to succeed in the college media environment anyway. And if you can figure that out, then when you're applying for jobs, people are going to see that and think it's really valuable. Like I was able to say, for example, we grew our Twitter phone from 500 to 15,000 when I was there and I was able to put that in my resume. And when you can say that, then it means you like kind of know something about the situation, but they don't know, you know? And so I might be too old at this point to know what exactly that dynamic would be today, the modern version of that. But I would imagine college students are intuitively aware of it, so. Yeah, we actually don't have, our paper isn't online yet. That's one of my projects. Oh, really? okay. uh, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm new faculty here at Langston. So one of my projects is getting the paper all up online and starting. Okay starting that off so yeah that all sounds really great i appreciate that that advice um here, here's another question for you what what's been one of the more challenging projects that you've had to work on as a reporter what's one of the things that really maybe you felt in over your head or it just took a lot more out of you than you thought it would um I mean, in recent times, there's been this uh, story for the New Yorker about Tiffany Crutcher. I never written a story about uh, violence by police against black people. I never written something that intimate about that or talked to somebody in that way about how they felt when they got the news and how they sort of processed those experiences. And so it was a challenge talking to her about that. And then it also was a challenge later to contextualize that in a way that presents her perspective, but also the broader perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you, have to, you have to somehow be able to understand what is, what is, what is the judicial what is the judicial perspective on this? Why is Betty Shelby not in jail? I don't think it's enough to just say it's bad. She's, it's bad. She got free or whatever you want to say. You have to, I need to, I need to be able to understand what is the perspective or how does the system operate in such a way that Betty Shelby is not in jail for killing Terrence Crusher? And so how do you say that, or how do you explain that without being disrespectful to this man's lost life, to the woman I'm profiling basically in the story? And so finding, finding the way to do that was really challenging for me. Um, and just even, even thinking about very important thinking about like the word, the kind of the word choice you have when you're sort of describing the circumstances circumstance under which he died. Uh, one thing I remember I did in that story was uh, Terrence Crutcher had PCP in his system when he was killed. And that became sort of a piece of evidence used by the um, defending Betty Shelby, basically, saying he was a threat. Right. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how I phrased it, but A, I didn't lead with that when I was sort of explaining the scenario because no one, no one knew that at the time. Do you know what I mean? So like in Betty Shelby's head, if we were with her on the highway, she didn't know that. So you can't put that in the story when you, when you meet the situation because she didn't know it. And so that's something I thought about carefully, because um, really that information comes in later during the during the trial or whatever. And so I kind of tried to frame it that way. Um, and then also I had a thing in there where I talked about how another person had driven by, had seen him in distress and wanted to help him, but this this person's uh, husband said no, we should keep going. And to me that's important because we can all we can all imagine scenario we were like that probably where you know you saw something going on and you like had to decide to help or not to help and then. Here we see the outcome of that decision, you know, to not engage in that situation. 
And so I just think some things like that that sort of make the whole thing a little bit more human in real time, you know, as opposed to let's like Monday, Monday morning quarterback, the whole thing um, are important. And I think they sort of help to um, tell all the facts without letting, letting them uh, control the narrative, to be honest. Gotcha. Monday morning quarterback. I'm not familiar with that phrase. What do you mean by that? I'm sorry. Oh, it's just a, it's a football thing. So like, Football's on Sunday, and if you want to be the Monday morning quarterback, you criticize the team the next day for what they did, even though you couldn't do it yourself. Gotcha. Monday okay. morning quarterback, yeah. Clearly, I do not watch enough sports. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I before we, we wrap up a little bit, because I think we're, we're getting to that point, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to be asked about? Anything you wanted to talk about that maybe I haven't hit on yet? Um, I don't know, but we've covered, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I can just say that in terms of the book stuff, and maybe this might apply to magazine writing to some extent, but I've learned a lot about, I've gotten, I've become a much sharper writer by doing this newsletter, basically by writing very short things. I've gotten better at writing long things because they're all tied in the same topics. And so I've been able to just sort of like hone my, thesis about why I'm here and what I'm trying to do by forcing myself to write these shorter um, newsletter entries. And so I think newsletters in general are sort of in a very trendy, popular time right now. So I think if students had ideas that could work in a newsletter format, they should consider look, checking out um, substack.com. It's kind of the modern, easy to use newsletter service. You can make a newsletter about any topic. And writing consistently about one topic will make you, help make you an expert in it. And when you, when you know something well, again, via short repetition, it makes it easier to do those long form stories because you kind of, you already intuitively know all the nuances that other people won't understand. Um, so with my Tulsa story, I, I, I'd already lived in Tulsa for six months when I wrote that story for the New Yorker. And so that's why I was able to write in two weeks, you know, because I already had some sense of what was going on here. Yeah. So if students want to follow you or get in touch with you after this, where, where, where should they go? How do they get your newsletter? And yeah, it's, uh, it's called Run It Back. And it's, it's, about, it's about neglected black history and specifically about Tulsa and the race massacre right now. It's at uh, runitback.substack.com. Uh, or my contact info is uh, Vic, V-I-C, dot Lucerson, L-U-C-K. E-R-S-O-N at Gmail. Anybody can always hit me up. Happy to answer any questions or offer any advice. All right. Excellent. You know, I had a person like once tell me to always ask the nagging question in the back of your head when you're doing interviews. I got one more nagging question to you. I just can't get, I feel like it's really a relevant topic right now, talking again about the question of joy versus pain right now. Mm -hmm. Where do you want reporting on black communities to go in terms of this dichotomy do you, what, what needs to be covered right now where what stories need to be told in your opinion um i'm very interested in the um economic aspects and i used to be a business reporter and so after in the aftermath of george floyd's killing we saw all these companies making these very grand gestures about how they're going to increase their investments in black communities and invest in all these black uh, led nonprofits and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
And so some of them, some of them are pretty tangible promises. And so I think it's important to sort of follow through, see what, what happens to those promises. And also to sort of understand as this economic recovery starts post COVID, how does that impact black communities and black people? Black people typically have the highest unemployment rates, um, suffer the most during recessions, um, suffer the most from the virus right now. And so I think trying to identify sort of what are, what are the structural systems in place that are causing that and trying to identify that in a way that's more specific than systemic racism, because that's a vague concept, um, is really important. And so that's something I hope that we can see more of. And um, the other thing I would say is, this, I mean, I don't know if students have really been involved in this, but trying to understand why Basically, like, you know, I want to understand what is the reason or what is like that, what is the policy thread that is sort of connecting everything that's going on right now. So, for example, I heard a story about Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the lead of the story is about how all the buildings got burned down. That now we've created this dynamic where I either support or oppose destruction of property. And that's like what we're talking about. And not about, you know, why are these people out there? What are the policy proposals they have or want? Um, if they don't have a policy proposal, what is it they want on a visceral level? You know, I, so I, I'd love to see more of a coherent thread of policy in, in the way that these stories are framed. Because part of the reason you end up in this dichotomy is because of the way the stories are framed, you know? So if, if I'm just reading the news casually, then I, my, one of my understandings is like this whole property thing. And it's easier for me to sort of have to pick one side of that debate. Um, but I think if we had more, if, if more of those stories talk to people about what policy they specifically want in the stories, then maybe it'll help us sort of get past that dichotomy, which I don't think is a very healthy one. Right. No, I totally agree with that. Before I was <laughs> educating myself, I remember thinking that um, the NFL, the kneeling during the national anthem was about the national anthem. That's how mm -hmm. it ended up being framed. And either you're pro-national anthem or you're anti-national anthem. Right. And you miss you miss what the, the substance is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I feel like journalism should always be about basically creating civic infrastructure. I think that's really what the, what the point of it is. And so, what you do know, you mean by that? I, need I need to be providing people with information that's gonna help them make informed decisions about being a citizen. And I don't think that, you know, this thing about, like the property thing isn't really getting towards that. You know, that's like a different, I think, in those kind of stories, there should be some thread of policy where people can be understanding what is the policy governing this system that caused the situation. Um, and I think that should be hammered home a lot more in the way that reporting is written. Like I said, the story I wrote about Tiffany Crutcher, it was about police oversight. You know what I mean? It wasn't just about this one incident that happened in Tulsa. Was, was the cop right? Was Terrence Crutcher right? That was not the point of that story. It was about police oversight and what function it could serve in our society. Um, and I think that more story. I hope. I hope that young reporters would sort of think think about things through that frame and sort of think about what is the, what is the bigger thing I'm trying to get at with this specific with this specific situation. Right. Well, hey, I really appreciate the in depth look that you've given us here. I this is this is great stuff, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, no um, I hope that some of my students maybe shoot you a message. Um, yeah, I encourage them to. All right. Well, I appreciate, I really do appreciate any, everything you've done. Um, and hopefully at some point after this coronavirus stuff is done, we can get you out here to Langston so you can see oh, it. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love it's to do a that. cool place. Cool.
All right. This has been a very boots-on-the-ground view of what magazines are and how they work. So if you want more on the history and business side of magazines, check out our textbook. It's got a full rundown. That's in Chapter 4. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Contacts are important, so I hope you reach out to Victor. He'd love to hear from you. I'll also post a few of his stories and the link to his newsletter. This week, we're tackling a discussion looking at physical and online magazines and a media challenge with photojournalism. For more on that, join me on Zoom Tuesday and Thursday. Keep an eye out on D2L. Go ahead and read those assignments as they pop up. I appreciate you all being here, and I hope you have a good day. See you soon.